Hi, this is John Olson. Thank you for joining us on the National Security This Week podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe so you'll receive a new edition of the podcast every week. Please leave us a review as well and tell others about us. And please contact us with any feedback or opinions you might have by emailing nstw at kymnradio.net. We hope you find the show informative and interesting. Thanks again. National Security This Week, a weekly look at American national security issues. And now, your host, John Olson. Good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday, June 15th, and you've joined us for our latest edition of National Security This Week. We get together here on KYMN Radio every Wednesday at 9 a.m. to discuss national security. We're joined by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us explore American national security. Occasionally, we also get guests who join us from other parts of the world, and today is just such a day. Since Russia invaded Ukraine, we've seen rapid and historically significant changes in Europe. These changes have not happened in a vacuum. Many of the changes simply needed a catalyst. And we're joined today by two guests who recently edited a new book, which is titled European Integration and Disintegration, Essays from the Next Generation of Europe's Thinkers. This book covers topics that are quite timely for what we see transpiring, transpiring excuse me, across the European continent today. Ayana Dutalieva is a lawyer at the Brussels Bar, where she practiced European and Belgian public and environmental law. She is trained in law and social sciences and holds degrees from Ghent University in Belgium and Columbia University in New York. Ayana is interested in the interplay between law, governance, and policy. Nick Cohen is a historical researcher and writer. He currently works at Schmidt Futures, a philanthropic initiative of Eric and Wendy Schmidt. He is also an advisor to the Wilson Center's Cold War Archives Research Institute. A former Shep scholar, he, he holds an MA from Columbia University, where he studied transatlantic diplomatic history, and a Bachelor of Arts from Carleton College right here in Northfield, Minnesota, in international relations. And full disclosure, Nick is a former student of mine. Ayana Dudaleva and Nick Cohen, welcome to National Security This Week. Thank you Thank for you, having us. So it's a Ayana, to be on with you. Oh, thanks. Ayana, you're in, in Brussels? I am. I am in Brussels, Belgium. All right. And Nick, where are you today? I'm in New York City today. All right. Well, we've got a great Zoom connection here, thanks to the high-speed internet at KYMN. So we're going to have a fantastic conversation. Ayana, let me begin with you. You're a lawyer in Belgium practicing public and environmental law. Tell us about the journey that resulted in you sharing editing duties with Nick on this book that we're going to discuss today. Of course. Um, in law school, I mainly focused on, uh, on European law, but as I progressed um, through my courses, I became more and more interested in the interdisciplinary study of law, uh, which focuses on adding the point of view from other disciplines, such as history, economics, uh, philosophy, to kind of contextualize the law as it stands today. And after law school, I wanted to study social sciences and Columbia's program um, was a perfect fit for me because it's, um, it's kind of embedded European studies in the graduate school's generous offering of um, courses in the humanities and social sciences. So it was this promise of an interdisciplinary environment and a different view on Europe, which eventually convinced me to come to Columbia. 
Um, Nick and I were in the same class. We were in the same program, but we also worked at Columbia's European Institute. And we would um, discuss lectures and the seminars that we had. And I remember being in awe of how interesting and original our classmates' thesis topics actually were. So we had several ideas to to find a way to share these views with the world. And so we thought about student clubs and student activities, many of which, you know, didn't see the light of day, except for Nick's idea to try and have this edited volume published. And Nick, same question for you. What brought you to Columbia and your partnership with uh, Ayana on this uh, project? Yeah, so I was uh, an international relations major as an undergraduate, studying with, with you, John, among others. Uh, and I realized at the end of my, my time at Carleton that I really wanted to dive more deeply into historical methodologies as opposed to uh, political science methodologies or social science methodologies. And I also had a, a driving passion for the study of Eastern Europe, uh, particularly Poland, knowing that the, the land between Germany and Russia is particularly misunderstood. Uh, and as we see today, it's also particularly important. And so building expertise uh, in that region is something that I, I wanted to do. And uh, similar to Ayana's path to, to Colombia, I was intrigued by the European Institute's opportunity or, or offerings for interdisciplinary study with a particular focus in Europe, um, but, but having a, a sort of broad approach to, to the study of European issues. Uh, and so I decided to go because I could I could dive deeply into those historical methodologies while still uh, exercising some of the, the social science uh, uh, experiences that I, I had had as an IR major uh, and also engaging in broader discussions, not just about Polish history or Eastern European history, but uh, EU studies and policy issues more generally. So bringing that, that public policy lens uh, to a more historical approach. And I realized very early on uh, in the, the very first seminar that I was at a, a very special place with some really special people. Uh, we were having, I, I think it was our first colloquium class. We were talking, trying to, to break down the question, what is Europe? Uh, which sounds like a simple question, but when you actually get into the details of it, it's exceedingly difficult to answer. Yeah. And I realized that the the conversation we were having as this group of you know 20 something year olds uh, starting on this, this program was, just as profound and insightful as the conversation that I was reading in newspapers and hearing on podcasts, talking about the, the current state of Europe, uh, and, and realized that it was profound and insightful, not despite the fact that we were this young cohort of people, uh, but precisely because we were this young cohort of people, bringing a unique perspective from our lived experiences, uh, seeing the world and seeing Europe in a different way uh, than some of the, the practitioners and the, the experts that, that we would listen to uh, and, and thought that this, these voices really need to be part of this conversation. Of course, we can't uh, replace the, the experts in the field, but we should be in conversation with them as the people who will be inheriting the European project and the, the idea of, of a united Europe. And so, like Ayana said, um, we, we got to talking and we started thinking through all sorts of different ideas of ways that we could uh, elevate and amplify the voices of the people uh, around us. Uh, and we were fortunate to, to uh, have an editor at Routledge that saw our vision uh, and agreed with it and, and agreed to take this project forward. And here we are two years later with a, a book under us um, and, and very exciting to have the opportunity to talk about some of the insightful uh, 
commentary and analysis that our contributors have put forward. Yeah, and, and we're going to talk in detail about the book uh, very quickly for both of you. Was your whole cohort at, uh, at Columbia, were you all in your 20s? I think we were, yes. So just a quick comment from me and for our listeners. Uh, all of you in that cohort have really never known a time when the world wasn't relatively connected by the Internet. Mm -hmm. And you also really haven't known a time when the world wasn't in uh, serious conflict, whether it be uh, counterterrorism operations on a global scale or uh, even regional conflicts. I mean, the, the, these are we've had a long time to deal with these issues, and all of you have grown up. Uh, in a in a world that was very different than a lot of us remember, <laughs> especially politically <laughs> back here in the United States. So could the two of you please explain what this book, European Integration and Disintegration, is all about? What were you trying to accomplish when you organized the writers and framed the topics, these uh, these essays that you collected here? This is, it's a great book, by the way. Oh, thank you. Um the mission of this book was basically to try and understand uh, what the future holds for Europe. Uh, we try to understand what lies ahead uh, for the European projects uh, and mainly through the eyes of those who will end up inheriting the projects uh, together with its shortcomings, its pitfalls and um, the legacy um, of the current lawmakers. The book starts off with this theoretical foundation, um, which we call the integration-disintegration cycle, uh, which basically proves that um, moments of crisis actually spur further integration. And the overall purpose of this book was to try and prove this theory and illustrate how different authors coming from different disciplines add empirical meats and more narrative to this theory. Another key mission or, or something that was important to us in putting this together in the, the first place was to kind of de-silo the discipline of European studies, mm. something that, that we realized very early on, uh, both prior to, to coming to Columbia and then once we started in our program, uh, is that a lot of the, the disciplinary analysis within the field of European studies happens uh, in, in one field. Uh, and of course, as we know uh, from anyone who even just casually observes uh, politics, um, developments in economics impact politics and developments in uh, the cultural field impact politics and so on and so forth in a very complicated and interconnected way, uh, not to mention the, the impact that history has in contemporary politics or contemporary culture. And what we wanted to do was put together an interdisciplinary uh, series of essays that may seem disparate at first or disconnected at first, but when you read them in quick succession, you realize that there actually is a lot uh, of uh, co-impact that happens between these approaches. And the, the takeaways that you get when you put a someone who does labor studies, for example, next to someone who does far-right populism, next to someone who does Russian dis disinformation, uh, is a lot richer than if you just read in the discipline of labor studies itself, or just read in the, the discipline of far-right populism studies. Uh, and so we really wanted to reflect the interdisciplinary nature uh, of the, the people around us, knowing that the, the solutions, if there are going to be solutions, will have to be interdisciplinary in nature. And so putting this volume together was an opportunity not only to think creatively about the future of Europe, uh, to, to understand the perspective of this emergent generation, uh, but also to, to put all of these different visions together into one space uh, to make the, the conversation within European studies 
much broader and hopefully much richer. Exactly. Um, the book is also an object of study in its own right, um, as it kind of provides the reader a window into the thinking, the analysis, and the writing of what uh, one of our contributors has deemed the Maastricht generation. And just to clarify, um, the Maastricht generation is a term that one of the uh, one of the authors has coined, and it refers to this generation that was born um, after the fall of the Berlin War um, in the early 90s, um, who, as you have said, John, um, has only known a Europe that is integrated right. and um, <laughs> interwoven as 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 much as it is today. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I mean, uh, the EU has been a constant in the lives of everybody in your cohort. Uh, you mm -hmm. didn't really know a time when there was an East and West divide, uh, the Iron Curtain, as it were. Uh, for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. We're broadcasting out of Northfield, Minnesota. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guests today are Ayana Dudaleva and Nick Cohen. And we're discussing the book they just co-edited, which covers European integration and disintegration. Uh, for the both of you, can you give our listeners a sense of who these authors are who penned the essays that you've curated? Maybe a bit about their backgrounds, their specialties, what motivated, mo motivated them to sort of pen these pieces that have gone into the book. Sure, of course. Uh, like Nick said, we all met through the European Institute at Columbia, and we would meet every week in a seminar to discuss everyone's research and everyone's progress. And so we, as the editors, had quite a unique perspective, a unique window into how um, our contributors' um, research projects progress from the very start to um, to the finish, uh, to the finished product of their thesis, and we saw how their thesis kind of transforms into compelling, um, beautifully written chapters. We were also able to uh, put out a call for proposals to participate or contribute a chapter uh, to the book, and we were in a fortunate position to be able to, in a way, live the research process for each of these chapters once we had accepted them. Uh, for this book and, and mold them over the course of, of the thesis research process uh, into chapters that would fit into the, the overall scope of the book. Uh, and in the end, we were very fortunate to have seven really fantastic scholars and amazing people uh, who contributed to the book. And um, we can, we're happy to share a little bit about each one and the contribution that they've made. Uh, and I think it's also important to, to know where everyone is from, because this is an important component within the, the, the approach, this interdisciplinary approach is bringing multiple perspectives, a diverse array of, of visions and, and experiences. Um, so I'll start with our first chapter. Our first contributor is Adam Frick, who is originally from uh, rural Pennsylvania and currently lives in Philadelphia. He works on worker movements, labor unions, and contemporary labor activity in the US and the UK. Uh, his chapter is called The Future of Europe's Social Democratic Parties lessons from the Labor Party's social contract failure. And it's a history of the Labor Party's attempt to codify an actual social contract in the 1970s. You know, we always talk in political science about this idea of a social contract, but it's ephemeral. Uh, right. <laughs> the Labor Party tried to literally create one. Uh, and what Adam shows is this was a complete and utter disaster. Uh, it failed from start to finish, uh, largely because it didn't take into account the needs and the desires of the working class people that the Labor Party claimed to support. 
it was through and through an elite document uh, that didn't really take into consideration what workers really wanted. And so, and, in this, and way, this is this is in the United Kingdom, right? That's what you're this about. is in the UK. Yep. Yeah, yep. Uh, and so, Adam's chapter, the opening chapter, serves as a, a cautionary tale for today's social democratic parties, where again we're seeing a disconnect between uh, the the working class people that social democratic parties claim to support and the actual policies that they pursue. Yeah. And this leads us to our second chapter, um, which was by Ali Kane, who's originally from upstate New York and currently lives in D.C. And her work focuses on far-right populism, refugee policy, and human rights. Uh, and her chapter is about the ways in which the AfD, the Alternative for Deutschland, Germany's far-right party, utilized and manipulated social media posts during the pandemic to galvanize anti-pandemic sentiment and anti-ruling party sentiment, um, specifically in the winter and spring of 2020. And this research not only sheds light on how the AfD used a complex social media strategy uh, to spread misinformation, but it also offers a roadmap as to how other far-right parties may continue to influence uh, through purposefully deceptive or misleading information sharing. And I think it's particularly interesting when put in conversation with Adam's chapter to see the grievances that, um, that, some, that working class folks have and how those grievances can be manipulated, uh, particularly through social media. Mm -hmm. The third chapter in the volume is by Max Farrar, who's originally from Connecticut and now lives in London. His work focuses on cultural commodification, national identity, tourism, and colonialism, an eclectic array, uh, but when put together, it's quite fascinating. His chapter details the change in tourist narrative in Catalonia from originally a generically Spanish model of sun, sand, and sea to a specifically or uniquely Catalan one uh, and describes the challenge that this has posed to both Spanish and European identity. Uh, we'll, we'll get into this, I think, a little bit later. It's a particularly fascinating chapter. Okay. Um, and then our fourth chapter is by uh, Floris Reisenbeck, who is from and currently lives in Amsterdam. Uh, he works mostly on youth political participation and civic engagement. And his chapter, uh, which is the one that coins the term the Maastricht generation, looks at the way in which young Hungarians in a notoriously illiberal country within Europe uh, engage in politics and engage in both Hungarian uh, politics and European level politics. And what he finds is that young Hungarians, the member of the Maastricht generation, uh, uniquely are very pro-Europe mm -hmm. uh, and importantly express uh, and participate in political, uh, political engagement in ways that are very different from what we're used to seeing. And so his chapter challenges this idea or this conception that there's this rising uh, Euroscepticism or, or anti-EU sentiment um, by showing that at least among the, the Maastricht generation, those of us who were born after the 1992 treaty that created the European Union, are actually very much pro-Europe. Uh, and so it's a it's an optimistic perspective that that says that we're likely to see more European integration as members of this generation emerge into positions of leadership. Yes, uh, it's also a chapter that we will be discussing more in depth later on. Um, then we have the fifth chapter, which is Emma Flaherty's, uh, titled, Who's Afraid of the Big Bad Wolf? <laughs> RT is reporting on the European Union in Central and Eastern Europe. And Emma is from North Carolina, and she currently also lives in North Carolina. She's a political scientist and a communications uh, major interested in Eastern Europe, RT, and media framing. 
Emma's chapter is a very interesting one um, because it gives us, the reader, a, a clear view and a somewhat disturbing picture on the rise of digital disinformation. So she focused her research on the aggressive media narratives from RT, um, also known as Russia Today, a Kremlin-backed television network. And Emma um, documents the shifting narratives uh, used by RT in covering the Central and Eastern European states in the European Union. And she shows how this media outlet basically controls the narrative on each and every country depending on the Russian interests at stake in each and every of that, um, of that country, country concerned. And Emma makes an interesting argument um, saying that the growing media narratives from aggressive actors such as Russia can pose challenges to European unity. But to fight those disintegrated forces, uh, she says it's important to first understand them uh, and then tackle them, which is um, something that Emma has succeeded in. Um, then we have Ruben Chonamu's chapter, who is originally from Zurich and currently lives in London, England. His chapter is titled The New Ostpolitik, Nord Stream 2, and the Politics of the German-Russian Gas Relations. Uh, Ruben is interested in economics, um, security issues, and geopolitics um, as they relate to Europe and Russia. So as we may or may not know, Russia remained for quite some time a key strategic partner for Europe, especially when it comes to the, um, to the imports of, um, of fuel, of gas, and uh, energy products. And what Rubin did was basically analyze the politics of Nord Stream 2 and German-Russian relations. Uh, Nord Stream 2 it was a very um, controversial uh, pipeline which would connect Russia to uh, the European continent. And he argues that the construction, construction of this pipeline largely followed a political rather than, um, than an economic mindset. But he does claim that the political backlash uh, highlighted the need for Europe to become more independent for its supply of energy. And last but not least, Faiz Al-Mamoun's chapter titled Will 27 Become One? The Linkage Between Europe's Domestic and Foreign Politics and the Prospect of a Single EU Seat at the United, at the United Nations Security Council. Well, that was a mouthful. Um, <laughs> Flo, uh, Faiz is from Paris and he currently also lives in Paris. And he takes on Europe's attempt to act as one single actor in international affairs. And he considers the question if the U EU should even have a single seat at the United Nations Security Council. A while back, uh, Germany called for France to actually give up its seat in the United Nations Security Council in favor of a single European one to represent all 27 members of the bloc. But Faiz doesn't think this would be a good idea. And he argues that such, such a thing would actually be harmful because of the destabilizing effect it could have on French-German relations um, to um, geopolitical forces both within and outside of Europe. That is a great summary uh, from the two of you of uh, all, all seven chapters of the book. And, and I, we should say that the two of you co-authored an introductory uh, chapter uh, as well. 
I, I would just say that uh, your Chapter 5, uh, Emma Flaherty's reporting on <laughs> RT's reporting on European Union and Central and Eastern Europe, uh, that one, and then the one on uh, Nord Stream 2, uh, the, the politics of German-Russian gas relations, they've probably been disrupted uh, the most, uh, the status quo, as a result of, uh, of recent actions. And I'd like to talk to you a little bit about that as we get going into the show today. Uh, let's delve into a little bit of some of the essays. Maybe each of you choose one of the essays, give us the title and author again, and tell us why it really resonated with you uh, as a key insight into what is happening in in Europe today. Uh, Ayana, let's go ahead and start with you, and then we'll turn to Nick for the second one. Sure. Um, Floris Reisenweg's chapter, uh, The Birth of the Master Generation, uh, resonated um, a lot. Um, I think it's one of the most optimistic chapters in this book. And he starts off um, with the premise that Hungary was once considered to be a success story um, and a poster child for a smooth transition to democracy and market economy. Um, But since 2010 and the election of Viktor Orban and his party into the government, Democratic structures have been dismantled quite a bit. Um, There were attacks on the electoral system, on the independence of the judiciary, the independence of the media, freedom of speech, um, the rights of uh, minorities. Um, But what Flores does is actually analyze how the, the Hungarian youth has evolved since Orban's rise to authority, and he research how the Hungarian youth actually engages with democracy since 2010. Um, His chapter is a very, uh, very interesting one. Um, There are a lot of empirical uh, studies uh, which he conducted, and he basically came to the conclusion that um, the Hungarian youth became more and more tired of uh, illiberalism and attacks on people's freedoms and on democratic structures. And he concludes that um, young people between the ages of, um, let's say, 16 and 29 uh, are increasingly in favor of democracy and um, they disavow dictatorship. Uh, Young people also support parties um, that are more liberal, democratic, and anti-authoritarian. And he also noticed that um, there is less interest in issues he deems to be far-right security issues, such as migration, terrorism, but there is is more interest in issues such as um, corruption, the cost of living, the rising authoritarianism and the decline of democracy. Um, he, however, noted that um, that it's quite concerning um, how low the voter turnout is among young people. But he actually explained this, um, saying that um, well, young people aren't disengaged with democracy; they're just um, wary of of um of the attacks on the electoral system uh which resulted them in distrusting um the political um status quo and the traditional political structures and he actually argues that uh young people make their voices heard differently uh through social media and by participating in protests um his chapter 
really is a really great one. It's one of the most optimistic chapters we have um, in the book. And he basically challenges the, the persistent narrative that, um, that the EU is experiencing a legitimacy crisis. And he uses the conclusions of this book to argue that um, Europe will see a boost in EU optimism because if young people in Hungary, one of the most illiberal states, um, are pro-European, then uh, it's a positive. It's a positive signal for the rest of Europe. You know, it's it's interesting you bring up this chapter, and and I, I did read through this one because uh, I, I found it really fascinating. And and uh, we had. Uh, Dr. Uh, Devashri Gupta on the show last week to talk about European politics. So this is sort of a, a second hit on European politics and, and economy and culture and everything else. And she, mm -hmm. she told me before the show that she had taken a group of students uh, to Hungary, actually, <laughs> in 2014, and wow. uh, talked about some of the, the things that, uh, that she discovered. And is it, is it Fidesz? Is that the party that Orban leads? So yes, she, exactly. yeah. So she she talked a little bit about about Orban, his impact on Hungary, sort of this backtracking away from uh, sort of the European Union standards, the the, the democracy yes. that had been moving forward across all of uh, you know Eastern Europe. And she said that she and the students sat down with, I guess it was the head of, is it Jobbik? Is that how you say that? The other, and <laughs> she was just <laughs> astounded. At how this uh, this the, the Jobbik part Jobbik party is much further to the right even than than is Orbán's uh, Fidesz party, and at the end of that conversation, uh, a lot of very highly educated, thoughtful, uh, engaged students came away thinking, "Oh yeah, jo this Jobbik party their their platform sounds pretty good." <laughs> <laughs> so this illiberalism that's been growing in Hungary, the, 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 it's a backlash from the students because they see how it really works in their country compared to all the other countries in Europe. And because Europe has the Schengen and you can travel across Europe at any time, I think there's an awful lot of integration that's happening culturally, uh, information-wise from the Internet. Uh, it, it's it's going to be very interesting to see how the younger generations who have only grown up, the Maastricht generation, that's only grown up with a, with a European Union, an integrated U European Union with democracy as sort of the focus of the political uh, scope of things, uh, fights back against the older generations who are trying to take Europe backwards, frankly, like Orban and his generation in Hungary and even places like Poland, etc., uh, Nick, let's turn to you. Which uh, which chapter really resonated with you? This is actually a, a great transition because um, on the one hand, we have the, the optimism of the, the Maastricht generation, right? the emergence of this young group of, uh, of Europeans and Europhiles who we think are likely to uh, invest in the project ever further. And at the same time, we know that there are all manner of disintegrative forces uh, pushing at the seams of, of European cohesion. And uh, the chapter that, that I want to talk about uh, is not the one about uh, RT's misinformation campaigns. It's not the one about uh, energy security and, and the relationship between e the EU and Russia. It's about the difficulty that the European Union has had in constructing uh, and disseminating a coherent European identity. Yeah. And John, you talk about um, the, you know, this question of will this younger generation be able to supplant or, or counteract the, the uh, regressive actions of someone like Viktor Orban. Uh, 
I think a key component of that will be the EU's ability to construct this broad narrative, this cohesive narrative that binds people together. Um, and Max Farrar and his chapter, Decentralizing and Democratizing Identity Narratives Through Regional Tourism, a lesson from Catalonia is a really fascinating intervention on this topic. And he looks at, um, he looks at a, a topic of study that we don't think about very often, which is tourism and the impact that that has on creating uh, identity narratives. Yeah. And he says um, that in, in the last 30 years, uh, with the, the rise of globalization, the lowering cost of, of air travel, notwithstanding our outrageous gas prices today, uh, and the ridiculous cost of flights uh, today, um, <laughs> but the, the decreasing cost uh, and barrier to entry for travel, uh, the expansion of internet connectivity, and the, the creation of these online communities that bind us together, um, there's been an opportunity to enhance and expand localized tourism narratives and identities. Uh, and he looks specifically to the case of Catalonia, which is a, a fascinating one on, on multiple levels. And so I'll start by saying that uh, in the 1970s and the 1980s, which is where Max begins the chapter, Catalan tourism fit very neatly within Spain's broad narrative of sun, sand, and sea. Uh, come to Spain and dip your toes in the beautiful beaches and soak up the, the beautiful Mediterranean sun, uh, which is a, an argument that could be made about any coastal country. And it didn't so much matter whether you were traveling to Catalonia or traveling to Andalusia or traveling to Valencia, you were going to Spain, generally speaking, for this kind of package deal. Um, but in the late 80s, and particularly in 1992, Catalonia began to assert its own national identity or sub-regional identity. Yeah. Uh, and it really, it, it emphasized this with the, the Olympic Games that Barcelona hosted in 92 uh, to create this global tourism narrative that Catalonia is a unique place uh, and encouraged people to come to Catalonia for a specific historical experience that's not Spanish, it's not Castilian, it's not Andalusian, it's specifically Cat Catalonian. And uh, it's interesting, Max talks about one of the primary mechanisms through which Catalonia builds its tourism brand, uh, which are music festivals. Oh, yeah. Uh, and it, it <laughs> advertises, uh, the government of Catalonia advertises these music festivals that get tens of thousands of people every summer to come, to come and listen. Uh, and what's fascinating about these music festivals is that they all celebrate a traditional type of Catalonian music called habanera. Uh, and this music is actually imported from Cuba. It's a, it's a legacy of Spain and Catalonia, specifically uh, imperial past. Mm. And it's a celebration of the colonial experience that Catalonia had in the, the uh, 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries. And so what's, what's important about this is that Catalonia is now specifically constructing a global identity uh, that celebrates its imperial past and trying to assert its national identity and its national uniqueness by saying, we have this grand imperial history, we deserve to be an independent uh, state or to be considered uh, as an independent entity on a par with all of the other great imperial nations uh, of Europe past. Uh, we are basically on the same level as, Europe, as the United Kingdom, same level as Germany, same level as France. Um, and what's important about this and what's the, the disintegrative thread from this is that this narrative, uh, which of course isn't just unique to Catalonia, Catalonia is one example among many that we could look to, 
is directly at odds with the the identity narrative that the European Union is trying to construct. Right. <laughs> the EU, right, it, it talks about uh, humanitarianism, talks about self-determination, talks about sovereignty, talks about the rule of law, uh, but it doesn't say anything or it doesn't reckon with the imperial and colonial past uh, that informs Europe, that has constructed contemporary Europe. And what we see in the Catalan case, uh, as well as many other cases of sub-regional tourism narratives, these localized identities are a lot more powerful than the, the European identity. Yeah. Not all of them challenge the, the concept of a cohesive Europeanness, but in the case that they do, uh, it, it has the potential to unravel the thread that connects Poles to Britons, uh, Germans to, to Greeks. Right. And if we focus more on the on the localized past and the localized history and these localized identities, the the ability or the possibility of creating that common bond between Europeans becomes harder and harder to, to carry through. Yeah. And I think this goes back to your the question that that both of you talked about, you know, what what is Europe? <laughs> so I think we're we're really dang, you know, diving into this issue of, of what is Europe? And I have to think that the established nations that comprise the European Union are not interested in giving up territory uh, to what are, you know, very legitimately unique areas of ethnic and cultural identity uh, embedded in each of these sovereign nations that exist today in Europe. And so what does that mean for the future? Uh, very briefly, uh, the two of you co-authored the opening essay in the book, uh, much of that discussion talks about, you know, economic necessities or, or opportunities. Uh, can one of you or both of you very briefly tell us what that, that chapter is about? Yes, of course. Um, we have witnessed that European integration is a very, very lengthy process with um, bursts forwards, um, moments of stagnation, um, in between crises, um, but this could actually be explained that um, the EU and other regional organizations operate in a zone of indifference. Um, it's a theory uh, developed by Philip Schmitter in the 1970s. And so um, the zone of indifference is usually disturbed when a crisis occurs. So it's only then that um, the EU has to face um, these existential difficult questions and start having conversations on how to prevent or tackle similar shocks or crises in the future. Um, so this is why, as paradoxically as it may seem, um, that crises actually add fuel to integration. Um, and history basically illustrates this theory. The very idea of the European project was born in the aftermath of the Second World War. Right. <laughs> um, the European coal and steel community was created because member states wanted to um, outsource the production of coal and steel. Um, and if national governments aren't able to produce coal and steel, then war would be just technically and practically impossible. Um, then there were many initiatives um, which followed um, there were talks about um, a European defense community, uh, a proposal that has uh, failed. And out of this failure, out of this crisis, um, came the 
first common market, the European Economic Community, which was a free trade integrated market mechanism that allowed the free movement of goods, services, people and capital. Um, so the European Economic Community really expanded the scope um, of economic integration of Europe. And um, at the time, uh, it was the most integrated that the um, European project could have been. The 1970s and the 90, 1980s were very, very difficult times for Europe uh, with um, economic crises coming from abroad, with global financial recessions, oil embargoes from uh, major oil producing states in the Middle East. And so what member states did was basically trying to protect their own national interests. Um, which may be understandable. They wanted to protect their economies, their, um, their employment rates. Um, but it was a time of Europe pessimism and the term Eurosclerosis was first coined <laughs> uh, in, that, uh, in that area. But as always, um, states just realized that the solution was not going to be a national one. The solution was going to be a European one. So um, there was um, the adjustable exchange rate was created um, called the European Monetary System, the predecessor of the euro, uh, as we know today. Um, the EMS uh, was basically a single European currency metric, um, which, uh, which allowed um, member states to uh, cooperate uh, deeply in the, uh, in the fiscal area. Um, the Maastricht, the Treaty of Maastricht in the, uh, in the early 90s then created the European Union as we know today. Um, and it was a time, the early 90s were a time of, um, of optimism. Um, it was also the time when uh, Europe was about to expand with at least um, 10 um, new countries uh, from Central and Eastern Europe. So it was a time of optimism, of hope, and the prospects of an even bigger and more integrated Europe. But then came the 20, uh, 2008 financial crisis. Right. Um, <laughs> yes, which was, uh, which was, um, yeah, <laughs> which was very, uh, very disturbing, especially for Europe, as a lot of European countries were hit even harder um, than the um, than the United States. And member states were faced with this inability to devalue their currency, which is usually done um, at a time of a, of a financial crisis. But because of the euro, um, they weren't able to do anything um, on a national level. And the subsequent European loans, bailouts, and austerity measures um, really uh, prompted uh, a deeper recession in the most affected countries, which is which are still uh, being felt today. Um, you know, it was all, you know, gloom and doom, but eventually um, states realized that the interconnectedness of um, member states' uh, economic and financial structures um, needed all stakeholders to engage in a um, collective, a joint restoration of the economy. Uh, Ayanna, I, 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 there's a couple of other questions that I really want to get to. Uh, I, I will sum it up mm -hmm. by just saying that the two of you, the co-authored uh, initial essay for the introduction of the book, it's fantastic. 
it really lays out a framework for, for how we should think about the rest of the essays in the book. Uh, so for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guests today are Ayana Dudaleva and Nick Cohen, and we're discussing the book they just co-edited, European Integration and Disintegration, Essays from the Next Generation of Europe's Thinkers. I really like the fact that we have these uh, so many young people uh, who are really thinking about the future of Europe. And so I'm going to put the two of you on the spot right now. Uh, for our third segment, we have about 15 minutes left. Within the framework of that book uh, that you have just edited, uh, give us an assessment of how forces, you know, economic, political, ethnic, et cetera, are influencing the events we've seen over the past four months, really, just since, uh, since Russia invaded Ukraine. Uh, what events have transpired in Europe that have been of particular interest to each of you and why? Briefly, a couple minutes each. I think... Um... What's been most interesting to me in, in the context of Russia's invasion uh, of Ukraine is the, the consolidated uh, response that we've seen Europe have in reaction, and in particular, uh, the response of Poland. Um, and I'll betray my, my, uh, my Polonist instincts here by talking <laughs> about Poland, um, but I think it's a really fascinating example of this, this integration-disintegration cycle that, that we lay out in our introduction, uh, which is that for the last 10 years or so, uh, as Polish democracy has been challenged, uh, as Poland has slipped further and further towards illiberalism along the, the Orban model, um, we've heard all sorts of talk about Poland being one of the great boogeymen mm. uh, in contemporary European issues. Uh, Poland would be one of the, the reasons that, that the EU will fall apart, that it will disintegrate. Uh, and in 2016, uh, in the wake of Brexit, we heard a lot of conversation about pole exit, uh, about Poland leaving the European Union. And what's interesting to see in the last four months is that Poland has actually emerged as the leading voice of European solidarity in reaction to and response to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Poland has, has accepted uh, several million Ukrainian refugees, has resettled them, uh, is leading the charge of trying to distribute military aid and other aid, humanitarian aid, into Ukraine, uh, has opened up its borders to serve as a conduit for, for aid, um, and is also serving as one of the lead negotiators or interlocutors uh, in the, the admittedly stalled peace negotiations between Ukraine and Russia. Uh, and I think that this is a really important thing to keep in mind, which is in these moments of crisis, we see even the most Eurosceptic countries coming together and realizing that Europe is stronger uh, when it comes together as a community and operates in tandem and in lockstep with each other, and not when it when it fights itself. Yeah, and I would just comment, uh, you, you may or may not know, we had Dr. Mary Curtin on the show some months ago. She was a, She's a retired Foreign Service officer at the State Department. Uh, she actually served a pretty lengthy tour in Poland as a senior diplomat in Poland. And one of the things she talked about was Europe, Poland might be a little skeptical uh, skeptical of, of the European Union on the economic side, but they were all in on NATO, absolutely all in on NATO. Everybody kind of unified on the NATO uh, 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 membership. And that's really coming into play now with the threat to uh, kind of Europe from this Russian invasion. Ayana, how about you? Uh, what do you see transpiring in Europe over the last few months that has really surprised you? 
Yes, uh, what really surprised me was the greater uh, military cooperation among member states. Um, for the first time since the Second World War, we saw that uh, Germany has agreed to send military equipment, yes. uh, which is a which is a, a whole reversal uh, right. in Germany's um, military policy. Um, so talks about military cooperation have increased since Brexit. Um, but um, you know, it's this—it's um, these events over the past four months that have really added fuel um, to 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 military and defense cooperation. So I'll ask the two of you a, a fairly big question, uh, based on your research, uh, having your fingers on the pulse of younger people in Europe. I mean, the book is essays from the next generation of Europe's thinkers, right? What is your prediction for the future of Europe? Obviously, there's no right answers here because none of us has a crystal ball. But does Europe become more integrated because of the forces of upheaval, as some of the essays say, uh, pulling at Europe seams? Or are we on the verge of Europe fragmenting under gravitational pulls from Moscow and Washington, D.C., respectively? What, what, what do you think? Nick, we'll start with you. I think we're on the verge of seeing uh, another big step forward in European integration. Uh, particularly as the, the Maastricht generation, this group of people born after the EU as a cohesive and unified entity, uh, as our generation steps into positions of power, whether that's actual leadership positions or it's gaining our voice politically and engaging in the, the political system, uh, I think we're going to see a real reinvestment in, in European unity and the European project. And I think the, the uh, events of the last four months of Russia's invasion and the, the pandemic, the long-term effects of the pandemic are only gonna make that process more intense because John, as you said earlier uh, in our conversation, people from our generation, members of this Maastricht generation have never experienced conflict before right. of this nature. We've never experienced something that has the, the real potential to legitimately threaten or counteract the, the progressive movement towards uh, global interconnectedness that, that we've seen over the last 30 years. This is that, uh, that sort of call to action for all of us, that this project that we believe in, this project that we, that we hold dear, and for many of us, in a way, take for granted because it's all we've ever known, actually needs to be supported mm -hmm. uh, and needs to be invested in actively. And so I think we're, we're going to see a lot more of this, uh, and, and we already are. We're seeing all sorts of uh, cooperation, like Ayana said, in terms of military cooperation. I think we're closer to a unified uh, European army than we've ever been before. Uh, not to mention the expansion of NATO uh, and potential EU expansion to Ukraine, to Georgia, to Moldova, several other states. Um, we're also seeing more financial assistance or financial cooperation uh, and a, a host of other uh, concrete steps forward. So um, my, my prediction is in the next five years, Europe is going to look a lot bigger uh, and a lot stronger, a lot more unified than, than we thought it to be. And, Agreed. And Ayana, what 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 about you? What do you think? I agree with everything Nick has said. I think in the short term we're going to see increased cooperation in rebuilding the damage that has been done um, within Europe and abroad. Um, I think we will see um, financial and material assistance, and ge just generally more solidarity, not only among member states, but. Um, candidate member states and even future candidate member states. So as Nick said, I think we will see a bigger and more integrated Europe. 
Yeah, and economics, as you, as the two of you spell out in your initial chapter in your book, is a huge driving force in in, in political outcomes. And uh, I think I brought this up last week with uh, with Dr. Gupta. Uh, the 220 billion euros that Europe has committed to uh, changing their energy infrastructure so they can wean themselves away from being reliant on Russia in any way, shape, or form is a huge move to really change everything in Europe and, and who they're aligned mm -hmm. with and, and uh, where they rely on energy, uh, their energy resources from. And I know that the, that the EU had a goal of switching over to what they call uh, uh, green hydrogen. In other words, hydrogen fuels that are produced by uh, clean energy options uh, by, the, by the year 2030. So converting a lot of their pipelines over to this movement of green hydrogen fuels around, uh, around the European continent. Have you heard about any of those things? Nick, you just raised your hand. What, what do you think? Yeah, I, I just wanted to, to jump in and say that those kinds of initiatives are exactly the kinds of things that have pushed Europe further toward integration in the past. Uh, I think it's, it's important to say as we're, as we're looking ahead and trying to, to predict the future um, that European integration has come from very transactional uh, foundations. It's always been something concrete and something relatively boring for, for us outside observers <laughs> to look at. Um, but those are the things that really bind Europe together. And so looking at this, this $220 billion commitment to uh, modernizing Europe's energy infrastructure or the, the issuance that they ultimately weren't called Corona bonds, but the issuance of sovereign EU pooled debt uh, in response to, to the pandemic um, to try to support the, the local economies of some EU member states. Those are the kinds of things that actually push Europe forward. And I think those are the kinds of things that we should be looking for uh, as we're trying to answer this question, will Europe become more integrated? Uh, and something, uh, again, it seems so, somewhat trivial, but uh, Germany's commitment of military aid to Ukraine is a very significant uh, change. Huge. Because it's that small, <laughs> concrete step that actually changes policy that down the road, we'll look back and say, this was a pivotal changing moment because all of a sudden, uh, there's a new possibility for things that European states can do together. I think yeah. it's those very small, those concrete things that we need to look to to answer this question. And I think what we're seeing so far in all of those small spaces is that Europe is integrating more and more and faster uh, than, than we've seen in the last 20 years or so. Yeah, and on your point about both of you for the, the importance of the Maastricht generation uh, impact politically on Europe, if you look around a lot at a lot of the European uh, or the governments, the nation states in Europe, there's some fairly young leaders out there who are part of that generation. Prime Minister of Finland is an example, right? Uh, and, and Finland and Sweden have just applied for membership to NATO, which is a fundamental change that just, just happened as a result of the catalyst of uh, Russia invading Ukraine. So we'll see. So, Ayana, I'm going to put you on the spot for this since you're from Europe. Depending upon how the American elections go for president in 2024, we know that there was already a trend in Europe uh, trying to wean themselves off of being so reliant on America for defense. Uh, depending upon which way the American elections go, do you see this being a greater catalyst for European integration, uh, stronger European uh, incentives for European national defense all on their own? I mean, how, how do you see it playing out? What's what's the word on the street in, uh, in, in, in Brussels? <laughs> <laughs> That's an interesting question, John. Um, I think um, with 
the U, uh, with the United States kind of withdrawal from the uh, international world order that was happening uh, previously, uh, we saw that those events have been a catalyst for, um, for the EU and for um, separate member states to kind of rethink their spending, uh, their military spending, um, their military strategy, uh, cooperation. So whatever the outcome would be, uh, of the U.S. elections, I think um, I think any outside events would be a catalyst for even more integration. Um, the world on the street is that Europe needs to be more independent for its um, energy, uh, for its gas, and for its uh, and for its security. Hmm. So we just have a few minutes left. It's uh, about three minutes left. I'll give each of you thirty seconds to give us the pitch for why people should buy your book. Nick, go ahead. <laughs> I think that this is a, a really important book for, for anyone who wants to know more about Europe uh, and who's not very much immersed in the history of the EU. There's a, there's a lot of great overview uh, and historical insight into how the European Union came to be uh, and how it's progressed over time. So this is a, a really good sort of introductory guide uh, into the study of, of Europe and into contemporary European studies debates today. Uh, but it's also interesting for those with more experience in European studies. And the, the, the chapters themselves are full of analytical rigor. Uh, each, each contributor has done multiple years of research that's gone into these chapters. Um, and there's a lot to be taken away from the, the individual insights. Um, and also, as we said at the, the beginning of the hour, the collective perspective that these uh, eight chapters, including our introduction, uh, provide when you read them all together. Uh, and it, it provides an answer for those who are wondering, just as we're talking about right now, um, who are wondering, how has the European Union not disintegrated already? <laughs> you hear yeah. every 15 or 20 years that the, the EU, you know, is the death bell for, or the, the death knell for the EU. Um, we think that this book starts to answer that question of why Europe has come together so well. Yeah. And Ayana, 30 seconds to you. <laughs> uh, yes, thank you, John. Um, well, to Nick's point, um, it's only one collection of voices in a very, very large conversation. And with this book, we kind of invite you, um, the listeners, and everyone else to engage in a debate on Europe, uh, about the future of Europe. And um, we invite anyone to share their perspectives um, on European integration and to kind of um, be a part of this generation that really thinks deeply about um, about current events and uh, issues that matter for uh, the future of the European Union. Um, the book can be uh, bought um, as an ebook or as a hard copy on Rutledge's website uh, at Barnes & Noble or anywhere else you might buy your books. Uh, it should also be accessible in libraries very soon. All right. So the book is European Integration and Disintegration, Essays from the Next Generation of Europe's Thinkers, edited by Nick Cohen and Ayana Dudaleva, our guests today. Thank you both for joining us on National Security Week this week. Thank you very much. Thank you, John. It's been a pleasure. That closes this week's edition of National Security This Week. We're on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining us today. Look forward to sharing time with you again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. Thank you for listening to National Security This Week here on KYMN Radio. Have a great finish to your week, everyone. Take care. You've been listening to National Security This Week 
weekly show looking into issues of American national security with the host, John Olson. Listen every Wednesday at 9 a.m. for National Security This Week.